as I said before, just a, in a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate Easter again. It seems to come around very quickly, doesn't it? I think it's so true what people say about the older you get, the more rapidly the years seem to fly by. Yeah, the annual rhythm of remembering Jesus' death and resurrection is upon us again. And as we prepare, I guess, to enter into this, this very holy time, I want us to spend some time today talking about the significance of the Jewish Passover festival and about how the story which surrounds the Passover ultimately came to fulfilment in the death of Jesus. We read in Luke 22 these words, Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and, and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was and still is the, the central annual celebration for the Jews. This, uh, this feast symbolised and retold their national story. The, uh, the celebration of the Passover meal was a very, very important event in their national calendar. If, in the first century, if you were Jewish, every year without fail, you, you made your way to Jerusalem, if you could, to celebrate the Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would continue over the ensuing seven days. In preparing and eating this meal each year, they retold the story, I guess, to themselves and to their children, their children's children, about how God brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, which they had been enduring for more than 400 years. Repeatedly through Moses, God said to Pharaoh, Let my people go. But Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go. So God sent a whole series of plagues upon Egypt, 10 in total. And then finally, after nine plagues, God sent the angel of death across Egypt to kill the firstborn of every household in the land. And in Exodus 12, we read these words. I haven't got them up here on the screen. You just listen to them as they were, I guess, listened to over the centuries. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of the year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or from the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides of the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, 
They had to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, heads, legs and inner parts. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, the sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the, ha- on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate as at a, it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread without yeast. And on the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly. On another one on the seventh day, do no work at all on these days, except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Then we jump down to verse 29. At midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. That's the story that they retold every year at Passover. So this is exactly what was happening in Jerusalem in the days just prior to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. The people of Israel were about to celebrate this Passover meal, remembering the night when the angel of death passed over Israel, yet killed the firstborn of every Egyptian home. If you've been here with us over the last couple of weeks, you remember that at this time in, I guess, the story, Jesus and his disciples had been ministering in and around Jerusalem. Jesus was spending his days teaching in the, the temple courts, miraculously healing people, and then and publicly challenging the, the religious authorities. He, he'd upset them to, to such an extent that they had decided that they wanted him killed. Now, they knew that murder was against the law. They knew that. The religious leaders knew that. But they figured that if they could get the Romans to do it for them, I mean, technically, they had killed no one. And besides, better that one man die for the good of the entire nation, eh? And now, you may be wondering to yourself, well, if that's all true, that the religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus and that Jesus was teaching in the temple courts every day, why didn't they just march into the temple courts and arrest him? Why didn't they do that? Well, the text gives us the answer. It says they were afraid of the people. The religious leaders were actually afraid of the people. They were afraid that the people would riot. Remember this particular week, this week of the the celebration of the Passover festival, there were about five times 
the number of people who normally lived in Jerusalem. And we also need to keep in mind that spontaneous mob-driven event which had occurred only a few days before when Jesus came riding into the city on the colt, the foal of a donkey. He came riding in and the people suddenly rose up and I guess gathered around the road and they laid down their coats before him and palm branches and they, they, they shouted out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord and Hosanna to the coming king. Hosanna literally means save. This visiting mob of Jews were ready to crown this miracle worker, this carpenter, from, from up in northern Israel by the lake. They were about to name him their king, their Messiah. And the religious leaders just couldn't risk a riot. They just couldn't. I mean, the Romans of the first century, they didn't mind what the occupied nations did, especially with regard to their religion with their religious practice. The Romans didn't mind as long as you paid your taxes and above all, you remained peaceful. They didn't mind what you did, but it was very important that you didn't have anything to disturb the peace. If the people rioted, there would be serious repercussions for everyone, especially for the authorities. They were on a knife edge. You see, only days before, Jesus had walked into the temple courts and do you remember what he did? He fashioned a whip. And he drove the people selling doves. And if you arrive in Jerusalem and you've got to you know, sacrifice a lamb or a goat, where do you buy it from? You bought it from the temple courts. So you can imagine how many goats and little sheep there were there. And it says he fashioned a whip and he overturned the tables of the money changers and drove who knows how many animals out into the streets of Jerusalem. You see, there had already been a ruckus. The Romans were already saying, what is going on here with this guy? They couldn't risk another riot. Jesus had to be stopped, but it had to be done quietly when no one else was around. Now, when do you think would be the optimal time? Just think about this particular week. When would be the optimal time to nab Jesus. It was probably during the Passover meal, wasn't it? Did you, when you, just, you think about it, every single family unit would have been celebrating the meal. They all had the text, in a sense. They knew. They knew the text. They knew that there was this very clear time about when it was to be done as the sun set. In exactly the same way. And the very nature of the meal meant that the people would have been indoors. That the streets of Jerusalem would have been deserted on this particular Thursday night. There's no chance of a riot that people wouldn't find out until the following day. And by then Jesus could have been tried, found guilty in the custody of the Romans. And no one was going to attack the Romans. I mean, it was, it was the perfect opportunity. And in addition, there's no way that Jesus would not have been celebrating the Passover with his disciples on that night, and it would have been within the walls of Jerusalem. They knew that much about Jesus. They would all be there together. It was the perfect time to execute their plan, but how could they discover just exactly where he was staying? You see, every night, Jesus and the disciples seemed to just disappear. 
Now we know, we know from the text where they were hiding. The gospel writers actually tell us in the text. We know that they were leaving Jerusalem in the late afternoon. They were walking the three kilometres. So it's about from here to Lakehaven. They were walking the three kilometres to a little township known as Bethany, where Mary, his close friends, Mary, Martha and Lazarus, had a house. And we know that they went there on the Wednesday night for a meal. And we also know that if they didn't go there, they were hiding amongst the trees on the Mount of Olives, which is just on the other side of the Kidron Valley. You know when you see photos of Jerusalem today, and you see the Dome of the Rock, the temple up there, which is the, the gold dome of Jerusalem, and there's the wall. There's always a valley in the front with a road running along it. Well, the other side of that, just the other side of the valley, that's the Kidron Valley, is where the Mount of Olives is. And so they were sneaking out of the, of the town of Jerusalem, the city, and making their way across there and sleeping just up in the, in the garden. See, clearly... Jesus was not going to risk spending the night in the city with so many people around. It would have been virtually impossible for them to have remained there and for someone to not have recognised them. You see, Jesus is in the, in the public spaces every day and it would be very easy for the authorities to find out. They're desperately trying to locate Jesus, but somehow he'd managed to keep his little group hidden at just the right times. But then Luke tells us, this is verse 3, he says, Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. You know, Luke tells us that Satan entered Judas. Judas, I mean, sorry, Jesus called Satan the accuser. The accuser. And he said, you have been a liar from the beginning. You know, that's exactly what he did through Judas. Judas went to the authorities, the chief priests, and he accused Jesus of being a deceiver, a rebel, a false prophet, a fake messiah. In other words, a liar who was endangering the whole nation. And that was the first step of a whole raft of accusations that would be levelled at Jesus over the following hours. You know, I think it's interesting that Jesus knew who would betray him. He knew exactly who was going to betray him. In John's Gospel, we're told that Jesus said, Have I not chosen you the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. Jesus knew who would betray him. He wasn't caught off guard by Satan or by Judas, for that matter. He, he knew their hearts. But what I find interesting is that the other disciples, they didn't see it coming. And that says to me that Judas was able to make a wonderful show of faith in Christ. He looked, for all intents and purposes, like a true disciple. For three years, he'd fooled them all. For three years, they were together, 24-7. Day in and day out, they were just together and somehow Judas had kind of fooled them all. But he didn't fool Jesus. Jesus knew his heart. He knew that Judas did not believe in him. You won't pull a swifty on Jesus. He knows our heart. So Judas looked for an opportunity to betray him when no one else was around. And as I said before, 
If you think about it, the Passover meal was the ideal opportunity. Trouble was, Jesus wouldn't tell them where he was going to celebrate the meal. I mean, it must have been driving Judas crazy. Now, it seems that Jesus had gone to one of his followers, probably a new follower, not one of the disciples, another one of his followers, and he'd made arrangements, but it was all to be kept very secret. Now, tradition has it that that this was, in fact, the home of Mark. Mark, the guy that wrote the Gospel of Mark, which seems to have been with Peter. Years later, years and years later from Rome, he writes the Gospel of Mark. But we need to read between, between the lines just a little, but it makes a lot of sense to me. You see, we know from, we know from Acts chapter 12, now this is after the resurrection, we know from Acts chapter 12 that Herod grabbed Peter. Remember, Peter preached this wonderful sermon. All these people decided to follow Jesus, 3,000 in fact. And the, the authorities grabbed Peter, put him in prison. And they put to death one of the other disciples, I think it was James, put him to death. And everyone's going, they're going to kill Peter. And it says they all gathered in an upper room to pray all night for him. Remember the story? Angel of the Lord goes to the prison, gets Peter out of prison, and he goes to a house. We know it was a wealthy house because they had a live-in servant. There was an upper room where everyone was praying. Remember the servant girl comes to the door, knocks on the door, opens the door and goes, oh, shuts the door, runs back up and says, I think Peter's at the door. They go, let him in, let him in. So they go running back. But we know in that account, it actually says that house belonged to Mary, the mother of Mark. So we know that house was Mark's house, where they had been. Well, that was clearly an important home in the life of the early church. And it's only a couple of months after these events, the believers gathered there in the upper room to pray. And it may well have been the exact location, the upper room where the Holy Spirit fell upon the church as well. But the night that Jesus was betrayed, the very night we're speaking about when Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples, Mark records in his gospel, and only in his gospel, that a young man was grabbed by the temple guards as they were arresting Jesus in the garden, across the Kidron Valley, up in the olive grove. Mark tells us, and there was a certain young man who they grabbed, but he escaped narrowly, naked. Tradition says that was probably Mark. And I can imagine he's at home, they're celebrating the Passover upstairs, and they all leave. And Mark grabs his blanket and says, I'm going to go with them. So he follows them across the Kidron Valley, and he's up there not knowing that Jesus is about to be arrested. So if you've got the picture, Jesus is being very careful here about just who knows where they will meet. I mean, it's such a human, everyday kind of story, isn't it? It sounds like a tale from the Second World War in Europe. It's also underground. I mean, Jesus used extraordinary miracles to heal people, but when it came to ensuring their location was a secret, it's also very human. It's also very ordinary. So let's read in Luke 22, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. 
where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. Do you see that? Totally in the dark. They have no idea until the day. And he replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. In the first century, men did not carry jars of water. That was woman's work. And this says quite a bit about the situation. Firstly, amongst all of the pilgrims filling the streets, this man would have stood out as someone very unusual. There would be no mistake here about whether they were talking to the right guy. There would have been no mistake. This was the password. This was the secret code, if you like. This was definitely the man Jesus meant. Secondly, the man was not known to Peter and John. So he's probably a new convert. But Jesus knew his heart. Jesus knew they'd be safe at his house. And thirdly, I think it's interesting that this was a shameful, dishonouring thing which Jesus asked this man to do, to carry water in public. But the man humbly agreed and obeyed and 2,000 years later, we're still talking about him. So Peter and John went and prepared for the Passover in secret. Verse 14 says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays me. And they began to question among themselves which of, it them, which of them it might be who would do this. Jesus eagerly desired to eat the Passover with them. You know, over the years... I guess as I've read these verses, I've always skimmed over that verse. I've never really questioned it. But during these past couple of you know, weeks as I've worked on this, I've really wondered about the significance of Jesus' words and why he had eagerly desired to eat this particular meal with its associated very precise liturgy with his disciples. You see, there was a very clear ordered structure to the way each and every Israelite family shared this meal. As I looked at the text carefully and as I read through the various commentaries, etc., as they discussed this moment when Jesus transferred the Passover meal to become the Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate today, it occurred to me that Jesus had been living out this meal for the past 
33 years with his own family. Jesus had gone through the rhythm of this meal with his family every year. He was the eldest son of the family and as a result he would have played a part in the ceremony each year when Joseph and and Mary celebrated the Passover. Part of the liturgy was that the father would tell, you know, we're starting and they would have these cups, these four cups that they would drink and there was the bitter herbs and of course there's the, the sacrificed lamb. But the eldest son in the liturgy would say, Dad, tell us, tell us the story. Tell us the story. And that's what Jesus would have done every year. Dad, tell us the story of the Passover. You know, it's so important that we understand the ceremony and what it really meant for these ancient Israelites all through these years as they celebrated the Passover so that we really understand what Jesus has done for us. To begin the ceremony, Jesus' mother Mary would have started off by lighting the candles. And there were four cups of wine shared during the meal. And each of those cups of wine shared with the family represented four distinct promises made by God. We find them in Exodus 6. He made these to the people of Israel. Joseph, Jesus' father, would then have opened the meal by by sharing the first cup. This was the cup of sanctification. That the people would be sanctified. In other words, they would be set apart by God's action. And they would have read the promise, I will bring you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Second cup was known as the cup of deliverance. And as that cup was passed around and shared, they would have recalled the verse where God promised, I will deliver you from Egyptian slavery. The third cup was known as the cup of redemption. And as they shared this cup, they they would traditionally recall God's promise, I will redeem you with my power. Remember, redemption in their mind was, if I had a brother who fell ill or became very poor and he had to sell himself into slavery to pay his debts, I could redeem my brother by going and paying the debt for him. And that would redeem him from slavery. See, the people were in slavery in Egypt for 400 plus years. And their God was going to redeem them from slavery. But at this point, you see, only Israelites kind of get this because they know the ceremony. At this point, Jesus said this cup, the cup of redemption, is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. But woe to that man who betrays me. Now John's gospel seems to indicate that this was at the point where Jesus handed Judas a piece of bread, possibly dipped in wine and said to him, what you're about to do, do it quickly. The fourth and final cup was the cup of restoration. And traditionally as they drank this cup, they recalled that promise where God said, I will take you as my people. But Jesus wouldn't drink that cup with them. He said, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine 
until the kingdom of God comes. You see, restoration, the people could not be restored. They could not be truly his until Jesus had died on the cross. Until the kingdom of God had come, until he died on the cross. Until he had offered that final sacrifice himself on the cross. I mean, I think it's amazing when I look back and I think, gee, it's a, it's a tough story, isn't it, when you find that God is going to wipe out the firstborn of every family. But then you find out later that not only is Jesus the sacrificial lamb, the lamb who dies, but it is God the Father who gives his firstborn and only son to pay for the price of the sin and rebellion. He pays it all. And Jesus doesn't, he's not just given against his will, he actually lays his own life down willingly as the sacrificial lamb. See, Jesus eagerly desired to eat this meal with his disciples because he knew that in that moment he would actually be standing, in a sense, between the last two cups, the cup of redemption and the cup of restoration. And all that the Passover represented for Israel was actually about to happen in a very literal sense for all the people through Christ. The ancient Israelites had been held captive by the powers of evil in the world expressed through the might of Egypt. But all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, are held captive by the powers of sin in the world expressed through death. See, as God took the arrogance and the apparent power of Pharaoh in Egypt and made it serve his own ends, so now God was going to do exactly the same thing through Jesus. When the powers of evil did their absolute worst, it says in the text that they were at their height, putting to death the holy and righteous one, the son of the living God. God used that event, the crucifixion of Christ, to defeat the power of death. Jesus eagerly desired to share the Passover with his disciples because not only did it represent all that he would achieve, but it also signaled the end of his suffering and his work was near. He'd made it. Jesus, the unique God-man, fully God, fully man, had made it, well, almost. The end was in sight. His focus was set and he would not be distracted. And to the writer of Hebrews, it says, or from the writer of Hebrews, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I think it's interesting as you read on in the text what it must have been like for Jesus. You know, at this point, they're arguing over who is the greatest in the kingdom, and they're just so off track, it's not funny. And then, and then Peter, like he's talking about dying, and they're, no, Lord, no way, not, nothing's going to happen to you. And Jesus says, Satan, get behind me. And Peter says, I will never desert you, never. I, I will go to the grave for you. Imagine what's going through Jesus' mind. He goes, oh, Peter, Peter, I tell you the truth. 
before the rooster crows in the morning, three times you're going to say, I don't know him. Not never met the man. Never met him. I mean, what must it have been like for Jesus? No wonder it says evil was at its absolute you know, climax. Even his best friends would say, no, nah, don't know him. No, nah. too shameful to know him. What must it have been like for Jesus? Incredibly, we ourselves today have been brought into this ancient, this kind of, I mean, it is ancient, isn't it? It's 4,000 years old, this ancient Passover feast. Just incredible. We have been brought into it by Christ's work on the cross. See, what was true only for Israel can now be true for all. Jews and Gentiles alike who place their trust in Jesus. You know, today we're going to once again celebrate the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> and my prayer is that as we head into another Easter celebration in a couple of weeks, that I guess our eyes would be opened anew to the wonder of the salvation story where God really does love his enemies. He really does. He loves his enemies because, you see, even his best friends ultimately were his enemies. They deserted him in the end. And his love for them is shown out in this, in the meal that we celebrate together. And I pray that we would see the wonder and the glory of our God, the one who not only reached into the muck and mire of a world ruined by sin and rebellion to save us by his might and power, but who also gave his one and only firstborn son to redeem us from the power of sin and death. Could those who are serving this morning, could you come forward now and we'll start to distribute the elements. The account we read earlier in Mark's Gospel was written probably in about, about 60 AD. But the the words from Paul's letter to the Corinthians were written much, much closer. And I guess they have always been, right for, back from the very earliest, they have been the words that have been said over and around this ceremony. It says in 1 Corinthians 11, The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he'd given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this. In remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. I would invite you now to just spend a moment, just quietly with the Lord. Take the bread in your own time. Thank him for his body broken for you. And we'll share the cup together after that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is such a wonder for us to know that we are brought into this 
this ancient symbol. That itself is a beautiful thing, but ultimately what really matters is the truth at the core of this. That your body really was given for us. Your body, the one and only unique God-man body. The only body never to have sinned given for us to pay for our sin. Lord, we thank you for that now. And Lord, we've kept the cup and we drink it now, remembering your blood, your blood that can do what nothing else can do. Wipe us absolutely clean. No matter what we've done in the past, no matter what we'll do in the future, your blood can erase all of that. Your blood can actually wipe away our sin. And we thank you, Lord, for that. And we drink this cup together now knowing that because of all you have done, we are one in you. We thank you for that. We share the cup now together. Amen.